This episode is brought to you by Element, spelled L-M-N-T. What is Element? It's a delicious, sugar-free, electrolyte drink mix. I tried this recently after hearing about it on another podcast, and since then, I've stocked up on boxes and boxes of this, and usually use it one to two times per day. Element is a great alternative to other commercial recovery and performance drinks. As a coach or an athlete, you will not find a better product that focuses on the essential electrolytes your body needs during competition. Element has become a staple in my own training and something we are excited to offer our coaches and student athletes as well. Element is used by military special forces teams, Team USA Weightlifting, at least five NFL teams, and more than half the NBA. You can try it risk-free. If you don't like it, Element will give you your money back, no questions asked. They have extremely low return rates. Element came up with a very special offer for you as a listener to this podcast. For a limited time, you can claim a free Element sample pack. You only cover the cost of shipping. For U.S. customers, this means that you can receive an eight-count sample pack for only $5. Simply go to drinkelement.com slash justinclimo. That's drinklmnt.com slash justinclimo to claim your free eight-count sample pack. Drinkelement.com slash justinclimo. Hello, and welcome to Why Sports, a podcast designed to highlight the value of athletics as a foundation for any career path. Through interviews with professionals across industries, we discuss the impact of being part of a team, competition, learning to fail, and how those lessons transcend athletics into the workplace. Join us as we explore the importance of sports as professional development while our guests share what they have learned throughout their career. I'm your host, Justin Clark. Welcome back to Y Sports. We are here with our generous benefactor, Matt Iconis, owner, winemaker at Brick and Mortar in Delta Wines. Matt, super excited to finally get you on. Thank you, coach. Great to be here. All right, let's get it. So let's talk about your career and specifically in what way your background as an athlete, and I know in high school you were a multi-sport athlete and you probably got into sports way before that, but what aspects, what lessons that you have taken with you have helped shape your professional career? Oh, that's a great question. I think taking it back to when I was a, a young kid, I grew up in a gym. My grandfather, he was the assistant basketball coach at the high school that I ended up going to, the high school you coached at. I want to say 30 years, like him and Christopoulos were there f- forever. So I, I grew up in the gym on Sundays with Eric Oviedo, with Tony Fulps, with Brandon Laird, not to date them at this point or myself, but I had, must have been five to eight years old, running around, picking up balls, throwing them up every chance I had. So as a kid, sports were it. And I didn't look at it as like sports were my meal ticket or anything like that. Sports are just my life. I enjoyed every ounce of, of energy I could pour into it, right? So I, I grew up in a gym. Fast forward a little bit, how sports shaped my journey. I didn't originally go to Davis. I started at UC Riverside and I was burnt out from sports in high school. Uh, I just didn't enjoy myself. I know I, I played one year for you and I just got to the point where it wasn't it for me anymore. So how I got to where I am now is I transferred up to Davis and ended up playing football at Davis. My, my background in winemaking, 
pre-Davis was I knew what wine was. I knew it was a, a thing you drank at, at dinner. I knew nothing about it. And I happened to go to arguably one of the best wine schools in the world. And I just stumbled upon it. I was an aeronautical engineer. I grew up my entire life wanting to be an astronaut. So I literally went to school to be one. And I found out with terrible eyesight and I'm six foot on a good day. It wasn't for me. And I happened to fall into Davis and football because as you know, coach El Camino, his uncle was head coach for football at Davis with Biggs and Biggs is without a doubt, if I could have a second dag, it would be him. He's one of the greatest people I've ever met in my life. And literally going to Davis just changed the trajectory of my life in a way that I don't really look at on a normal basis. But when you look at getting into wine and then my career path from there, traveling throughout the world, making wine in, in a bunch of different places, and then meeting my wife through wine and then with kids and football itself set it up. And it's a humbling idea. We make all these decisions throughout the day. You don't know which one is the one. And the idea of deciding to go to Davis and not go into a smaller school where I would have played more, but I wanted to go to Davis because I'm from Sacramento and I want my grandma to come watch me. And those small decisions, yeah, it's a ripple effect, right? Like it just cascades throughout life and it was pretty profound. Yeah, the background story is really fascinating because I got to witness the majority of it. And then we didn't have regular communication for quite a while. And now coming back to where you've grown into an adult who is raising many humans now and hearing how you ended up doing what you're doing <laughs> is really eye-opening. And I want to go back in on, I'm not at Davis. I don't fall backwards into winemaking because one door closed. And you mentioned Brandon Laird, who said on my other podcast that closed doors are blessings. Without football, without you deciding at Riverside, you know what? I miss football. Let me go back into this and see what happens. You're not even sitting in the chair you're in right now. No, yeah. I've listened to all the contacts ones. So Brandon's was one of my favorites, mainly because personal connection. I don't know him well, but I've known that name. And I've seen that name on the wall at El Camino when I was a kid. And, and he was great. Uh, he was a great player. He's something to look up to. I feel like most of my life, I, I've had a plan. And most of my life, that plan hasn't worked out exactly the way I thought it was going to. Just me as a human, I'm a planner. My, my, much to the chagrin of my wife, I'm a planner. I think I look at it as you, you see so many ideas, so many plans that you can make, and it, it comes down to how you execute within sports, right? There's a game plan. There's a background and everything that you do, and then things happen, right? Yeah, I went to Davis, tore me ACL twice. So you want to talk about disappointment. College football did not work out the way I thought it was when I picked up my entire life down in Southern California and came home. And I look back on it and it's disappointing, but at the same time, without coming back for football, I wouldn't be make what would you want? So I look at everything and I take what I need out of it and you get rid of the rest because if it doesn't help you, then why? Yeah. You mentioned disappointment. That's actually where I was going to go with my follow-up because as doors closed, trying to be an astronaut trying to come back and play football and you tear your ACL and you said you're a planner and to quote the great Mike Tyson, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. How did your experience <laughs> in sports 
growing up in athletics, competing in all of the different aspects of sports that you play. And now even as you're teaching your children that and you're coaching them, how did that experience set you up or better question, prepare you to deal with those disappointments when they showed up and were counter to the plan that you had so carefully laid out for yourself? Yeah, it's a great question. I think when you look at it, we've all got a plan. Whether you think you do or not, you wake up in the day and you think that you're going to be doing something. So you have some sort of plan, be it short-term or long-term. When you look at how sports prepare you for that, a season is just, it's a constant preparation. You're preparing your body, you're preparing your mind for plays, be it football, basketball, baseball, however it is. And it's a constant preparation, but once you get to the game, it's adaptability, right? It's looking at the situation, analyzing the situation and adapting and making new choices. When football didn't work itself out, I kept pushing. After the first torn ACL, I came back in five and a half months and I was running. I was good. Three days into spring camp, boom, two. And at that point, you take a step back and be like, right, am I doing what I should be doing? And that's kind of the processing. Right. When you go through a game plan and then all of a sudden it's not going according to plan, the stubborn ones just keep pushing. You're like, no, this is my plan and this is what I'm going to do because this is what I have planned. And I will be the first to tell you that I'm an incredibly stubborn person. So that was my plan. I was like, I'm just going to keep going. And I mean, you wake up every single day in just an immense amount of pain. And you sit back like, what am I doing? This is what I should be doing. And disappointment, I look at disappointment as opportunity for the most part. Every day of my job is, is to make wine, which we can get into it later. It's not as glamorous as it sounds. It's carrying big hoses and cleaning stuff all day. Like I said, failures are the opportunities that you didn't think you were going to get. And for me, it got down to the point where I look at disappointment and I internalize it. I distill it down. I take what I need from it and you move on. It's the idea, the quarterback mentality on one of these is about quarterback mentality. And there's no better way to put it. You look at a situation and I played receiver in college and, and I, I still remember wide open touchdowns I dropped in high school mm -hmm. and to this day. But what do you do? You get back to the line, calls another play, you go run that play. I think to be successful, you really need to have a short memory because you can really fester on the bad stuff easily. And in general, those are where you're, you start to make real big mistakes. Absolutely. And on that point, your experience in sports, I dropped a touchdown. We'll run another play in 30 seconds. I got to let that go. We'll deal with it later, but I got to lock back in. Where does that mental toughness and discipline of those lessons of learning to deal with that failure, those mistakes, and still carry on. Where does that show up for you in the business of making wine? Are there specifics that so, you can point to and be like, hey, you know what? Actually, last week this happened and I could have gone off the rails, but instead it was like, hey, here's an opportunity for growth. Yeah. Yeah. So we're in the middle of a pretty big bottling month for us. And just speaking to this past weekend, there's a tank that just wasn't acting properly is the best way to put it without getting too geeky because I can go down a whole big rabbit hole. It's the gases in the wine were wrong. And you kind of look at the situation and you're like, I have never experienced this. And I've been, I've 17 harvests and I, I've just never experienced something like this. And I'm just thinking to myself, I, I can't figure this out. I have 
5,000 cases of wine that I need to bottle. It's a very frustrating situation for someone that's very analytical and plans to a T that all of a sudden something pop up and you're like, what is this? But in the end, you take that time, it could be a minute, it could be three, it could be five, and you just step back and you're like, okay, but taking emotion out of it, like, where am I at right now? What's going on with me that is the problem of, of why I can't move past and start being pr productive, proactive in this. And that's a personal thing that you work through a lot of the time with failure, because as much as I plan, uh, I succeed more than I fail because I plan a lot. But that being said, those failures have been not massive in magnitude, but massive personally for me, because it's not something that I'm used to. But at the same time, they've been huge in my growth because you look at the situation in which if you can plan perfectly and then it doesn't work out, what was the tipping point from success to failure? What was the point in which you no longer deemed it as a success? And then how do you either fix that? How do you plan ahead? How do you adjust all on the fly? Like, how do you look at that in a manner in which you can be more adaptable? Because I feel like in our world, speaking to that tank, speaking to everything I do, if it's not a hundred point one, one could look at that as a failure. I don't, but people constantly give you a number for what you do. Which I think everyone looks at it like, oh, 95. I'm very happy with 95.1. That's ingrained wine. That's what they do in the industry. <clears throat> yeah. Here's my bottle. Yeah. It's like taking a test. You get this grade. Yeah. It's exactly what it is. And it's a very naked thing. It's very much a situation in which they're going to give you a number. And that's what that wine means to them. Which it's taken some time not to think personally. There's situations where I love that wine. You only gave it 91. All right, it's probably one of my best wines. Or it's, I don't really like that wine, and he gave it a 95. So what's important to you? And I look at it, success, especially when it comes down to ratings or scores, or I was listening to the one yesterday about the writer and the producer, right? Listening to his take on 87% of directors in Hollywood go home with empty-handed. Man, I've got a 90-point score in every one I've ever made. I feel like I should maybe be a little bit easier on myself. You look at it that way. But again, it's internal, right? Like at what point do you look at what your standards are? And are they aligned with what they should be? Are you being too hard on yourself? Because we own brick and mortar in Delta with my wife and I, just two of us that run these companies, and we make 35,000 cases a year. So should we be a little bit easier on ourselves? I'm not that person in general, but it's something that I have to look at and with time. And I think getting a little older and having kids and coaching kids and you want to look at it and I'm like, man, do I need to be so hard on these? Right what you general, just brought up, Matt, I think is a really important point. And I want to go in on that. Your standards of success are what they are. And everybody's a sample size of one, but as a competitive athlete, that probably grew from, hey, I'm trying to get 1% better every day and I have an outcome I'm trying to reach and I'm making decisions in line with trying to be successful in whatever way I define that success. And that's carried with you, right? Like 91, that's not good enough. I can get better. Yeah. Great, love it. And you had a situation as a winemaker in the state of California this year where we had fire oh. season, which was a little bit, untimely and probably set back the entire industry. And 
I mean, you can plan for it, but at the same yeah. time, you can't control that. So using what you just said about having kids and getting a little bit more perspective and understanding the idea of what's important and what's urgent and what's catastrophic and how to deal with those situations. What did you learn through that experience this fall that you've been able to take with you that you can now apply moving forward? I'm going to go back to 2017. That fire was big. 2019, that fire was a half mile from my house. Like that's a situation in which I, I said, go back to 17 to start with mainly because that was the fire in which I was like, why am I at work right now? Because I still went to work. It was one of those things that every valuable that we claim as valuables, passports, pictures, and stuff sat by the door or were in my truck and my family just sat at home and I went to work. Granted, my the winery is five minutes from my house, so it's an easy commute. But again, looking at what's important in growing as a person, you look at what am I here for? And I was going through the motions at that time of kind of just, I'm going to do my job and then I just want to go home. So a level of what's important and what do you deem is important in levels of standard for individuals? Yeah, it was a situation in which it was like, I would rather be home. I'd rather be with my kids because it's a scary time. We've had three, four fires in the last, you know, five years. This one, this past year, I was never really worried about it coming to my house because on the other side of town and Healdsburg being Healdsburg, they were not going to let that fire burn through town. Like just wasn't going to happen. So it was more of a business problem than a personal problem. It was before the pandemic. So I just shipped my family off to the East coast. They, they were in school. The air was awful. My wife is from North of Boston. So they went back there and I just sat here and I was like, what do you do? There's a lot of questions. Like we, none of us know all the answers when it comes down to, we use the word smoke impact or smoke tape. It's a very fluid situation. So what do you do, right? You try to mitigate your risk. First and foremost, you're looking at grapes, you're taking analysis, you're trying to make these decisions, but there's a, a bit of a leap of faith where we're all in this together. And that's kind of where it comes down to being a team. It's a very tight industry, the wine industry. It's very small. You know everyone, you're sharing information with people. You're trying to figure out what are we gonna do together? Rising tide rages all ships, so does a big wave takes them all down. And so you're all just trying to figure out how to survive together because it was tough when, when fire hit in August, it just impacts everything. You have just learned to adapt. You make decisions. You have a plan that I'm going to make X amount. And then you make 10% of that and you live with it. And that's just the way it goes. So I want to pick at a few threads there because I think they are very relevant here. One, wine business is a small community. We all know each other. We share information. We try to lift everyone up almost like a team outside of your immediate Delta and brick and mortar team. And that idea, that ability to network and to reach out and meet other people that theoretically could have been opponents. It's like those Rio guys or those Del Campo guys. And you know what? We need each other to be successful here. How did your background in competing in an area where you know everybody else but when it's game day, you got to go head to head, but you're still leaning on those relationships to be successful. How did that prepare you to navigate through the hard times building this business? You look at it as what's important. 
speaking to Rio and, and Del Campo, right? Like I had friends on all those teams. What was important was my friendship. Maybe not when I walked in between those lines. I'm one of those people that I'm just trying to, in the lack of a better phrase, just bury you. That's just who I am as a person. Like I'm trying to beat you and I don't want it to be close. But the moment it's outside that, they're my friends. So you look in the situation, the wine industry is not that competitive. There's not really rivalries or anything. Maybe the big houses, you're making 50 million cases a year. Yeah, maybe there's a rivalry there. Here, at our size, it's a situation in which you have people that you're acquaintance with and you always share things. You share information. You're like, hey, this can you help this person with a job? Do you know this contact? This person's looking here. And when it comes down to the fires and things like that in general, you start reaching out to people, especially if it's close, right? There's Atlas Peak. I worked for the Antonori family for four or five years. I still source from up there and in half of that vineyard, part of that vineyard burned, two fires that were within hundred yards of the winery. So you just start reaching out to people. Can I help? What can I do? You know, and that speaks back about being a team, right? We're all a team. In this industry, we're all a team because in Sonoma County in general, it's where I am. The more Sonoma County raises in Providence, in overall stature, the better it is for everyone. And so we're all a team. And so you look at the situation, it's what can I do? What's my role? Uh, my role at this point was, all right, we actually got out pretty well for the fires. There's maybe one wine that didn't work out. There were wineries that burned to the ground. Do you need space? Do you have other grapes that you're still going to make that you need a spot to come make them? And I think as an industry, we did a great job. You call a friend and say, hey, listen, bring him here. We'll figure it out. Just bring him here because you have no control when it comes down to harvest. Harvest for me is a time which is usually August 1st-ish through the end of November. My wife knows I'm going to be at home at some point during the day. When that is and how long that is, there's no guarantee there. And so you're looking at a situation in which you look at your friends, your colleagues in dire straits with their winery burned or with, frankly, their financial viability for their business at stake. I'm a big proponent of you setting everyone up for success. In the winery, in life, my goal is for my kids, just set them up for success. Hope, do my best to make them great people, set them up for success. So you just take that same mindset into your industry, throughout your industry. And, and when something like that happens, you're less concerned about uh, what's my fermentation doing today or what's that vineyard doing today? It's like, this person could lose their business. This person could lose their livelihood. What can I do to help them? And, and it was the Colonel living a life of, I can't remember the exact phrase, which is giving, right? And I thought it was such a great point. I listened to that last night. It was such a great point where it's like, we're all working. We're all working really hard. We're all really focused on what we do. I'm gonna retire eventually. And then what I did doesn't matter, but the impact I make on people that does. And so it's a important point. I'm 34. I'm still new at everything I do, frankly. And so it's something to be able to listen to other people on these podcasts with way more experience in life, let alone in careers. And you just distill it down you take the nuggets. It's, it's awesome. What I take out of that is the idea that you're part of something bigger than yourself and while you are trying to maximize growth and success for your corner of the market and your business and your family, you are also a cog in the machine 
and service is still a big part of that. And that's probably something you learn being on a team and being in a role that was challenging and being hurt and still having to support the team and serve others because you were in a bad situation or you were in a good situation. And I often wonder if you can tell when you're interacting with others that may or may not be wired the same way. And if you've ever reflected on where that comes from, did a lack of participation in team-based activities direct them to just being all about themselves? Do you encounter that in that business or is the wine industry pretty much all team players? I don't think any industry is all team players, to be honest with you. But to your point, roles. I know you say it all the time, you know, excel your role. I grew up, frankly, I was good. I was never great at anything I did. I was very smart. Like that, I had that going for me. Never fast, six foot. My goal is I'm just going to work harder than you. So my role in my team was I'm going to work really hard. So it's going to make it very apparent if you're not working hard. Because I'm not as fast as you. And if we're going the same speed, that's a problem. And so I look in that role in general. That's how I always looked at it. I looked at sports. I was good, right? Like in El Camino, I did well. But when I went to college, it was a, it was a very eye-opening experience. Like, oh, you're a decent-sized fish in a very small pond, my friend. And then you get into a decent-sized fish in an ocean. You better fight. And when you look at understanding roles, and I really look at this when it comes down to, I'm a step-parent, which you want to talk about a role. That's a role, man. That is a situation in which I'm still learning. And it's a very humbling experience to be a set parent. You, you want to understand your role? Your, your role is to do everything and then hopefully get some credit later. And that's something that my wife tells me. My kids are great. My two-step kids are great. I just call them my, my kids, Headley and Lincoln. They're awesome. You want to look at a situation in which I'm grinding out, grinding out, but I'm never number one because they have a dad. I'm never number one. And that is a role in which I feel like in my life, let alone industry or sports, that's a role in life that you never prepare for. You can never prepare to be a step-parent. If you have one, I think you have a leg up. But again, you have to be very introspective if you can distill, again, how you reinteracted with your step-parent and it wasn't the right or wrong way. And then how do you use that to be a great step-parent? Again, it comes down to being supportive. My job is to do whatever they need and just leave it there and be there. And that's it. Your support role. As a step-parent, you are support role. When you are a parent of your own, we have our own together. We have another one on the way. That's different, right? Like you're the coach, you're the captain, right? You lead the ship. And looking at roles in general and how you can prepare for them or how you can go back and forth because obviously one household, three kids, two step kids, one, one mind. So those are different roles. You just have to be open, right? Be, being coachable. I'll be honest. You could probably test. I wasn't a terrible coachable person, but I wasn't the best. Like I I'm very stubborn, but I would always work really hard for my coach. Like that's what I would do. That's what I, I brought to the table. As the older I get being adaptable, being someone that while I am in charge for the most part, I don't always have to be in charge. Great leaders know how to follow. My wife is very good at what she does in life. She's far softer than I am. 
in general. Her corners are much rounder, if you will. And you want to follow, let her take the lead and watch and learn. They're her kids and, and that you want to look at how do they interact? Being a coach, I coach, how do you, you got to learn how those kids respond, how they uh, assimilate what you're saying. And maybe I'm saying blue, but they're hearing green. That doesn't work, right? Where my wife says blue, they hear blue. And so you got to look at it like, okay, what are you doing that I can learn from? And I, I look at roles in general as they're a snapshot of time for that particular opportunity, right? Like we run our winery, I'm the winemaker. That's my role here. I also consult, right? My role is to give opinions at that point, And then someone else makes the decisions. So that's completely different. And there are times in which you, as a consultant, which I'm sure other people on the podcast can attest to, you make a suggestion and they're like, nah, that's not a very good idea. And you're like, okay. And you know what, in the end, it's your brand, it's your business, it's your company. You hired me to give my opinion and I'm going to do it. And if that doesn't work, you have to look at it as what did I not present or how did I present it where they did not accept it or they didn't hear exactly what I was trying to say. And it speaks to how you communicate and within certain roles. I would push back on that a little bit because I'm in that role as a faculty member, as an advisor. I give the best advice I can given the information I have and the circumstances and I do it objectively because I'm not emotionally attached. And whether they take it or not, I sleep really well at night. But when we're talking about our kids and I give that same advice and they don't take it, it's very emotional. Like it's different than giving it as a consultant. So I would say, hey, do what you can in your recommending body. And I love that analogy. I love that you took it to the step parenting thing because that's something that having had experience with two of those, it does matter. And it's a challenging situation. And anybody that does that is doing yeoman's work. And hopefully, and actually I know this, the the kids will generally circle back at some point and you'll get your due. I want to know how you took the word coachable and how as a owner, you have been able to utilize the lessons you've learned through being an athlete, through receiving feedback and criticism and coaching And now you're out coaching kids and you're doing other things and you're trying to get better and listen to things to to help you there. What have you learned about feedback that has worked for you? What is something that, wow, this was an area of growth and now this is what I really try to pay attention to because of this situation or because of what I learned uh, through this experience? Great question. Pulling back the layers a little bit. I didn't come from a very positive household in general, it was a very strict, if you don't have a 4.0 plus, like something's wrong, which I think was effective in creating who I am today. Was it the best way? That's arguable. I look back and I'm very thankful for the way I was raised, but my wife was raised completely different than how I was. Nurture, no nature. It was a very different relationship. And I look at criticism, feedback loops, feedback loops is such a better word, but I look at the way that I was coached. I had coaches that would football in particular, I would yell, especially back early two thousands, different time. And I remember as a player and to this day, you yell at me, I'm just not going to say a word. I'm just not going to say a word because what you did is like, listen, this is not a very respectful way to communicate. And so I don't raise my voice to my kids. I don't do it at all. Because as a child, as a kid, as a player, 
when my coach would do that, I would just shut my ears. I'm like, I'm not listening to a dick. I'm not listening to a thing you say right now, man, because this is, you're not on my team at this point. You want me to be on your team. We're not on the team together. Mm-hmm. And so when I look at the way I communicate as a business owner with everyone, with someone that works for me, someone I work with, my, frankly, my wife as a co-owner, right? You gotta look at it, which is, I don't know if you and Amy have ever done anything together. It, that's a challenge, man. But it's awesome, don't get me wrong. Highs and lows are, are real. It, again, it goes down to a distillation of, of things. When I was a kid and you would yell at me, or, or not you, but a coach would yell at me, you want to look at a situation like, I'm listening to what you're saying. I don't want to talk to you about it right now, but what can I take from that? And so you look at it as the one providing the feedback. All right, how can I just eliminate that distillation point? How do I do the two positive, positive, negative, positive? If you want to look at it that way, give them some great feedback, give them some positive feedback in general and say, listen, you're doing a great job here. I need you to do this because, and I think I've listened to, a lot of the, the context wise, why when you look at this generation and then I'm 34, so I don't even know if I call myself in this generation or that generation, I don't care, but they want to know why. And I think a lot of the conversations in which I have with my kids in general, you have to one, be prepared and two, you have to be willing to explain. As a coach, I started out as a, this is my way of the highway. And the moment your players start asking why, and you're not prepared, they know they're not stupid they're very smart kids and so you want to look at the way that in general feedback loops have shaped what i do my goal is to be very even keeled regardless of the situation be very objective cut and dry be very clear because i know as a person that what's worked for me that being said thing about anything life coaching or whatnot everyone's different you have to change the way you approach every single situation based on who you're talking to. And then sometimes people need feedback in a rah-rah way. Some people need feedback and like, you're better than that. And sometimes it's a combination, depending on the situation per person. And I think that just comes down to personal experience with, with that in- individual or that client or your wife and your work together, right? We're all on the same team. We're all trying to better our company, better our life. We might go about it different ways and being very respectful about what the other person's opinion is. But in general, I try to be very efficient. How do I get to where I need to go? I think I need to go at least in a most effective manner. And usually that's just very clear and precise as much as I can. I think Um, to your point, Matt, I'm just going to jump in on this is you, you mentioned a few things I think are really important. One, people are different. And I don't want to say I caught a lot of heat, but I could feel it early on in my career, not so much now because people realize what's going on a little bit more, but fair is not equal. You may treat one guy one way and another person the other way because that's the button that needs to be pushed. And the understanding of that as a leader and identifying that and then starting from a place of temperance and being calm, clear, firm, consistent, here's what you're doing, here's what I need you to do and here's why is going to be received really well as long as you understand the person that you're talking to. And I think that's a great lesson how you've grown as a leader. We got one more question here that we're going to wrap up with, and this will be your elevator pitch as to why you think you as a parent 
are coaching your kids in sports? Why should people get involved in what was often a little bit overwhelming or scary or uncomfortable? Why should they do this? How does it benefit them? What is your elevator pitch on that? First and foremost, besides the exercise side of things, it's not in front of a screen. We can just go there, get that one out of the way. Low hanging fruit. Um, yeah, low hanging fruit. Just get that one out of the way. I think in general, getting kids to interact with other kids that aren't maybe in their circle. I grew up in Sacramento. It's There's a lot of kids there. there. There were a lot of kids. There were a lot of different socioeconomic situations. And you diversify them. You start exposing them to different people, different types of people, different situations. And I think in general, there's very few places where you can see such diversity in a situation, whether it be households. It may all be from Pebble Beach, right? Mm-hmm. Not every household's the same in Pebble Beach. You start learning other people, the negotiation skill, the communication skill, everything that you need in the professional atmosphere, a professional setting, when it comes down to how you go through a process of preparing, right? A lot of people who don't play sports, the idea of, of preparing for something is very different than someone that goes through a season, right? Each opponent is very different. And you look at the situation when it comes down to, don't think there's many places in the world where you can find as hardworking people as it comes down to sports. Because sports frankly, regardless of the sport, it's a grind. It is an absolute grind. And mentally and physically, it really pushes you to find out who you are. And it's a very eye-opening experience that I've found. It's a long elevator ride. But I think in general, if you want to set your kids up for success, the idea of exposing them to, to a broader range of situations and teaching them to compete I think it's important that winning isn't about as much as learning how to succeed. And I think in general, that's what sports do, right? Because you have a plan, you go into a game and your goal, your level of success is a win or a loss, but it's not necessarily about that end product, about the process. How do I adjust where you look at a situation and how do I win? How do I succeed? And again, it's not about the wins and losses so much about how do I get to the end product in which I'm desiring, which sports are the, the number one way to go about that. I would agree with everything you just said. And to wrap oh, up, diversity, expanding your network, learning work ethic, how to prepare, soul searching, finding your identity, learning to compete. And ultimately, you learn about process. And outcomes are a result of commitment to process. And I think, as you said right there at the end, there's not a better place to teach that. And I appreciate you sharing that. And it's a great way to wrap up. And I appreciate you taking the time today to join us. Hi, this is Natasha McGill, recreational tennis player at the club at Pasadena and labor and delivery nurse. Ever feeling tired after a long day at work or after tough practice? Try Element. That's L-M-N-T for the energy you're missing in your life. It's sugar-free and filled with electrolytes your body needs for energizing power. Try it risk-free, money-back guarantee with our special offer at drinkelement, that's L-M-N-T, dot com slash Justin Climo. You only pay the shipping. What's there to lose? Power up! This Cypress Grove podcast is proud to be sponsored by Delta Wines and Brick and Mortar, our everyday go-to with sustainability built in. 
Delta wines are vibrant yet balanced, made to be enjoyed on a special occasion. Brick and Mortar was founded in 2011 and has worked to create the European Wine Drinkers California Wine. The wines are small lot, single vineyard, sourced from Napa, Sonoma County, and the Mendocino Ridge. In addition to tasting good, they also help you feel good with eco-friendly packaging and environmental nonprofit donations from every purchase. Buy online at winesforchange.com. In addition, use the code CONTACTS to support us and get a discount. The presentation is beautiful, the wines are great, and you're supporting Saving the Earth. What more do you need? Again, that's online at winesforchange.com. Discount code CONTACTS at checkout. Now enjoy the podcast. If you found this valuable, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And give Y Sports and this week's guest a shout out on social media to show your support.